This is our uh, third week in a series on one anothering. That is this idea that uh, there are multiple scriptures that speak to how we are to treat one another with, with a focus um, on how Christians are to treat Christians, how followers of Jesus treat other people in the church, in the body of Christ, with direct implications for how we treat everyone. And there's a sense probably in which we all feel uh, a hope, a, a need to, to think about this more and more in our fractured, divisive culture. And as followers of Jesus, I think it's important that we, we start with our own hearts and our own relationships, our own uh, house, if you will. And, and we have broken it up a little bit into uh, three different sections, all falling under the, the first sermon was love one another, and that all is all is connected uh, to all. There's always overlapping, but uh, love encompasses it all. And then we're a few weeks of humble service. And then we'll do a few weeks of encouraging, building one another up, exhorting one another. And then a few weeks of share with one another, share life with one another, uh, share burdens with one another, share mission and vision and purpose with one another. But we're, we're in the Humbly serve one another. And last week was humble. uh, It's clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. It's essentially humble yourselves before one another. And this week we're looking at Ephesians 4, focused on forgive one another, which I I think requires uh, a deep humility and a deep service. And then, uh, then as a result, flows back into that. About 11 years ago, a woman named Lauren Hildebrand wrote a book called Unbroken. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, there's a movie that was made uh, based on the book, and as usually is the case, the movie is not nearly as good as the book. But uh, the book is phenomenal, and it follows the real life of Louis Zamperini, who's this just amazing individual. He was an Olympic athlete and very successful in all the things that he pursued. And in World War II, he was uh, essentially shot down in the Pacific Theater and was afloat on a raft for it, it was. I can't remember if it was 47 or 49 days, just on a raft in the ocean. He was shot at by enemy planes. He had sharks surrounding him. He was doing his best to collect rainwater in the raft just to survive, and he survived to be rescued. But the rescue came from the enemy. And so he was put in a, a Japanese prison camp for over two and a half years and experienced torture, mental and physical, uh, of the nature that... It, you can't even talk about in a, in a sermon, right? It's just can't even imagine the things that he experienced. And most of it came at the hands of one of the camp leaders that everybody referred to as the bird. And so it, it came, as you, as you read the book and you hear the story, there's this incredible sense of relief when the end of the war comes and they're freed from the camp and Louis Zamperini is able to go home and experience freedom in his home in California. He's married and starts to live life. And yet what he finds is, and I think what Hildebrand is getting at in the book is uh, he hasn't been broken up to this point. But he gets married and his life, because of what he's experienced, he begins to uh, have great bitterness and resentment and anger around what he's experienced. And understandably so, right? It's, it's, uh, you have to understand uh, that he would experience that. But he... His marriage begins to fall apart, and he, uh, he finds himself essentially at the bottom of a bottle. 
So he has significant alcohol problems and he is beginning to be broken. And as is the case with probably many conversion stories in the 1950s, he ends up at a Billy Graham crusade. And uh, Louis Zamperini realizes that he is free in America, but he's imprisoned to his bitterness and resentment. And as he begins to encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ at this crusade and recognize that he himself needs to be forgiven of his sin and brokenness and rebellion against God, his life changes and it changes dramatically. He's broken before the Lord and he turns to him for forgiveness, for salvation, for the hope of being drawn into relationship with the God, the creator of all things, and his people. And it changes his life. To the, to the point where he even wants to travel to, and does travel to Japan to try to find the bird and, and tell him that he's forgiven. Which is just this amazing, powerful story of forgiveness. And, and we maybe have heard other amazing, powerful stories of forgiveness. I think it's helpful for us to recognize that probably, probably nobody in this room will experience that kind of experience, POW camp and torture. Um, and there's a, a, an encouragement and a challenge for us to, to think about the everyday life of verse 32, forgiving one another uh, as a, a, a regular attitude that we might move toward. Now that said, there are things like this that happen. And, and I want to recognize that as we talk about this idea of forgiveness, there are volumes and volumes written. There are whole sermon series. There are years and years of uh, counseling sessions that uh, address the particulars, particularly in really difficult situations of trauma. And, and, and maybe you have experienced uh, great trauma physical or sexual or emotional over uh, maybe it's one time or over a long period of time. And I want to recognize that the things that we're talking about here, when the Bible talks about forgiveness, it's not offering trite answers of just forgive, right? I, I recognize that some of this is really deep and difficult and, and some things will take a long, long time to deal with. But I, I want to encourage us to think that uh, about the place where attitude of forgiveness often starts in the day-to-day and the regular. And that it might move to, through prayer and reliance upon the work of the Spirit and the work of the Gospel, to those big things as well. Um, but we're not going to be able to cover all that. Even to think about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation and how it plays out in specific ways. But I think we can probably be challenged... And in our attitudes and encouraged as we pursue this call to forgive one another. There are three things that we're going to look at. First is the idea of the things that we are to put away, the things that we are then to put on. And very clearly, that's verse 31 and then 32. And then the power by which we do that, which is the end of verse 32. So let me pray for us and uh, we'll look. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your amazing forgiveness for us and that it might play out in our forgiving one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Put away. Look at verse 32 here. I'm sorry, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Uh, There's a sense in which we are to step into the action of moving toward forgiveness. Forgiveness is not just a a feeling that we have. 
Now, the, the prayer is that the feelings would, would come from the actions, but there's a sense in which we're to be intent to put away these particular things. And, and we could say that, that the ways these, these aspects of malice, hatred, uh, there are these ways that they play out with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. And let's just look briefly at each one of those. Uh, these things that we should think to, to set aside. The first that's mentioned is, is bitterness. And bitterness is this, this temptation that we have when we have been wronged and we will be wronged. And, and the reality is we will be wronged many times in our lives to varying degrees all the time. It's just going to happen. If you, if you have any relationship with anybody, you're, you're going to be wronged. It, this is the nature of our brokenness of our sin that we confessed earlier that, that we're going to be wronged. And so there's a temptation to sit in bitterness and sit in resentment, to, to focus and think about with great detail the ways in which we've been wronged, to fixate on it. And it leads to this idea of, of bitterness, which the writer of Hebrews warns us against in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The bitterness flows from not understanding God's grace. His mercy to us. So see to it that no one fails to obtain that. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. There's this recognition that, that bitterness is, is, is broken and painful for the person who becomes bitter. As well as many around them. There's destruction in bitterness. And so there, there is a, a work often that we need to do to not sit in the resentment that we have. The second word that we see here uh, that is part of, of this malice, all this malice is uh, this word wrath. What is Paul saying when he encourages us to put away wrath? Well, the idea I think that he's getting at is, is us seeking vengeance ourselves. And he says in, in Romans that vengeance is the Lord's. It's not ours. But we often want to pursue vengeance. That is, we, we want to right the wrong. And oftentimes we want to overstep it. We want to take it uh, uh, one step farther. And, and I know this is often the attitude of, of my heart. As I see broken things, I, I, uh, I, I want uh, to let people know that they've done wrong, and I want them to experience punishment sometimes for it. I, I think there's sometimes movies that get at uh, this idea and, and, and our des- the desires in our hearts. So I, I saw this week a trailer for a movie on uh, Amazon Prime. I've heard some pronounce it Amazon Prime. That doesn't sound right. But uh, there was a, a trailer for this movie, and the, the heroine of the movie has the, what they call a condition. And her condition is, unexplicably, it makes her very powerful and strong and all these kind of things. But it also it means that she has a, essentially a very short temper and that she snaps whenever she sees uh, injustice, whether it's to her or to someone else. So example would be she's on a subway and a guy is like very messily and rudely eating a sandwich and just pushing her to the side and off the seat. It's very rude. And uh, another example is uh, an incredibly rude uh, waitress. And, uh, and she should never, no waitress should ever treat anybody uh, the way that she is. And then there's another example of, uh, of a guy really mistreating a, a, val- a, a valet. 
and saying this, she's lost the keys and so uh, calling her all kinds of names. And, and in every one of the situations, like this is wrong. But then the result is because of her condition, she snaps and she essentially uses violence uh, to enact justice in a situation, right? But there's a way in which the movie is made, which is common in a lot of movies, is that as you watch it, you feel a sense of satisfaction. That person should pay for what they did. And this is just justice that's happening. It, it gets at our, our, at our heart to, to decide ourselves that we would be in that situation where we could, and, and, and I, I hope, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we all want to beat somebody up every time we see uh, something wrong. But there's, there's a sense in our heart that we want to see justice as we define it, when we want it, uh, at, a, at a particular moment. And, and certainly that flows out of a desire for justice, for, for good and right justice. But the, the problem is when, when we think it's our responsibility, when we think that we're going to be the ones that are going to bring that about, and we're going to make the decision of when and how, and that we then delight in it when it happens. Not to mention all the, the questions of uh, it going too far in every one of those situations, right? But they make those movies, and those movies are uh, successful because there's something that we as viewers find satisfaction in watching. There's a, a temptation for us to want to see wrath come upon those who do us wrong. I, you know, I see it uh, in young kids, young siblings sometimes, right? This child, this, this sibling said something to me, and so the response is, I'm going to hit them. But... The, the, we justify why, right? But, but they did this. You know, the, the, the parents uh, often uh, catch uh, the, the second, the reaction, right? This is the same thing in, uh, in sports when a penalty is thrown. You, you always, the referee always catches the reaction. But, but you didn't see what they did. There's always a justification for our wrath poured out upon someone else. Now, it doesn't typically happen for us violently. But it happens in the way that we talk about people or the way that we treat them or the way that we get angry with them. And there's a, a challenge to, to think about how we respond when wrong happens. And it does happen. It doesn't mean that it's not wrong. It doesn't mean that we've experienced injustice or someone has sinned against us. That happens all the time. The next thing we see is anger, that we're put, to put away anger. Now, just a few verses earlier in verse 26, there was uh, Paul noted that we can be angry and not sin, that there is this effort that we take to not let the sun go down on our anger, not to sit in it, not to, uh, to let ourselves wallow in the anger, that we seek to, to put it aside, that we don't dwell on it. Uh, the next point that we see is uh, this idea of clamor, to put away, what, what is this, what is, what is he talking about, uh, to put away clamor? Uh, the Greek word there has this connotation of shouting. And I think it, it gets at our temptation to, to not be self-restrained in our anger in the midst of being wrong. And so it might actually play out in shouting with another person. That, that we would uh, not have the restraint to, uh, to, to not yell or even say all the things that come into our mind. Now, uh, we, we live in a time where it's often... Uh, you know, the value is on, you know, live your truth and don't uh, hide who you are and what you, it's just, you're just being truthful when you say all kinds of terrible things about somebody, even if they've done you wrong, right? And that, and that you are repressing who you are and what you feel and experience if, if you try to restrain that. 
And the biblical picture is, is much different. James tells us in chapter 1 that sin, that brokenness, comes from within our own hearts. And that there are absolutely times when we should restrain ourselves. But it's not just being truthful to who you are to just let it all spew out. That's just lack of self-control. And it's painful and hurtful to other people. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that just take your feelings and tamp them down, right? There, there are times where it's really appropriate to share what you're feeling, even when your responses are, you know are, are wrong, to share those with other people, to have conversations with, uh, with your, your pastor or elders in the church or people that you trust in your community group or family members or a counselor. We, we, we have scholarships available to New Hope Counseling because we believe that New Hope Counseling and counseling itself is very valuable. And there's times where that's, that's sharing what we're experiencing. But the idea that we would just let it all out at any given moment when we're feeling it is, uh, is something that only leads to more, of, more malice in our hearts. And it only breaks down relationships. It is not the helpful way to go. There are going to be times where we need to pause and step back. And maybe that's in a personal conversation with somebody else. Maybe that's when you get an email that really makes you angry. And you want to send back that email right away. Or there's something that you see on social media and you want to respond right away. Let me encourage you that in, in your anger, take a moment and pause, and maybe you do need to talk to somebody about it. Not, not just tamp it down, that's not what I'm saying, not just ignore it, but to deal with it in a, in a healthy way. Because what often it leads to, and this is certainly an issue in our social media age, but it doesn't take social media, to slander other people. That's the, the next word that Paul uses here, to put away slander, to talk about someone who has wronged us. And maybe it's to try to expose them, to put them on blast, on social media, but maybe it's just to go to our friend and say, did you hear what this person did to me? And we begin to malign and and slander them. This is, this is a a, a quick uh, and easy, and it's, it's often justified, right? You you justify it in your heart and in your mind. Other people need to know about this. Now I'm not suggesting that we don't pursue and, and particularly in different situations. And this is what I alluded to at the beginning, some of this is very complicated, that there are times when we pursue justice in healthy ways with other people. That absolutely needs to happen. But there are times when we, we need to be really careful about the way that we talk about other people, whether it's in person or online or email or whatever it might be. Uh, we need to avoid temptations to slander other people, to talk, even when they've wronged us. We'll get to how that plays out in verse 32 in a second. But we need to recognize that what we, what we will continually find ourselves in is in positions to, to intentionally evaluate and think about ways in which we are tempted toward bitterness or wrath or anger or clamor or slander. Because it will happen. We will be tempted in that direction because we will be wronged. And the answer is not just that we find somebody that we just happen to get along with easily. Because we're going to find ourselves in relationships where people are going to hurt us. That's the nature of relationship. Uh, Elaine de Botton is a British uh, philosopher, and he's, uh, I, I'm only aware of an article that he wrote for the New York Times in 2016 that was one of their most read articles, and it's why you marry the wrong person. And it, his argument is essentially that you always marry the wrong person because people are going to hurt you. And you don't 
And to, to say, oh, I married the wrong person is just an out, right? And so that he uses this line at some point in there, and he says, compatibility is an achievement of love. And forgiveness and love, all these things fit together. So compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be a precondition. What's he getting at there? What does he mean when he says that? That compatibility is not a precondition to love or to forgiveness. Because what happens is we come into relationship with one another and we hurt one another. And if we begin to think, I have to find somebody who's compatible, you're going to be let down. That person is going to hurt you. And love works through the pain and the hurt to find and move toward that compatibility. And one of the ways that that happens is through forgiveness. Here's the, again, we're talking about relationships, one another in the body of Christ. The body of Christ throughout history and around the world is made up of natural enemies. What, what do I mean by that? It's not just an affinity group where we all just kind of uh, enjoy the same thing. What we find is from the very beginning that Jesus brings his work of forgiveness and salvation, he brings together slave and free, Jew and Gentile, Samaritans and Jews, people who were, who were naturally opposed to one another, and the gospel is for all. And so the gospel is now for all those in all nations, in every tribe and tongue, every people group. And there are reasons that we disagree with one another. And we're finding it in our own country. There are places where we will disagree with one another, but we need to be reminded that in groups where we disagree with one another, even strongly, even over things that really matter, that we, we will find ourselves at, on opposite sides at different times. And what we need is to be able to step into this attitude of forgiveness and putting away the malice, the hate, so that there are people who love Jesus, who are a part of both political parties or think about the, the ways in which we respond to COVID differently or the ways that we talk about race and, and engage those conversations. It's, it's difficult and some of these things are weighty and they matter. But what we find is that this call in the body of Christ to love and walk and forgive one another. So we're invited to take stock of our attitude toward other and, and ask what our expectations are. Do we think that we're just, we should never be wronged and that we're going, to, we're going to react hard when we are? Or do we move toward this thoughtfully thinking about, okay, what are the ways in which I might be bitter? If you've thought about particular ways in which somebody needs to forgive you or you need to forgive somebody else, how, how is your mind playing out what it might look like to, to put away bitterness or clamor or slander, the way you talk about them. But fortunately, he, he gives us direction, not just don't do this, but here's something to do instead. In verse 32, he tells us uh, that as we put away malice, hatred, and all, that, uh, all the ways in which that plays out, he encourages us toward kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Be kind and tenderhearted. This is the language that uh, when it's used to describe Yahweh, that is God, who the personal name for God who wants relationship with his people, uh, that when it describes him as tender-hearted or kind, it's when he's forgiving and offering mercy to his people. Because to some degree, he, he understands where they're coming from, but we ourselves, as we're kind, as we think about offering mercy or forgiveness, or grace to those around us, what, what it requires us to do is to recognize that other people have reasons for their we, we always excuse our own sin right well you don't know what happened I, I experienced this and this is what my day was like and that's why i exploded and so it's okay right 
But it's never okay for somebody else, whatever's going on with them. But what we're invited to do is to, to understand where others are coming from. And we're ultimately able to do that, to forgive, because we recognize that as we've been wronged, we've wronged other people. Here's the picture. Forgiving one another. There's this mutual relationship that Paul is talking about here. So he's not just talking about, okay, you've been wronged. How do you think about it and do it? No, he's recognizing that every single one of us is going to be in the position of wronging someone else. And that's often painful, and we don't want to admit it oftentimes. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, opportunities that we had on our month off was to be with good friends of ours, Matt and Kelly Lorish. I went to college with them, and she was Steph's best friend growing up. And he has now planted a church in our same denomination in Richmond, Virginia. And they have worked incredibly hard over the last 10 years to be a church that welcomes and experiences uh, uh, racial reconciliation. They have uh, African-Americans and white folks in the same church. And it's been really difficult. And that's a really tense conversation uh, in our country right now, right? And one of the things that struck me that Matt said in talking about what God is doing there and the beautiful, it was beautiful to worship with them and, uh, and to see their church and what the Lord is doing is, is he was talking about a lot of the painful things and saying one of the things that they have had to embrace is that they themselves have hurt other people in the process. In the midst of a lot of the misunderstanding and, uh, and a lot of the ways in which we're learning from one another that they have to embrace the fact that they have, have hurt those around them. And, uh, and they have to sit in that. And, and that's a challenge. And that's painful. You know, the, the, the whole reason that they went there was to bring the beauty of the gospel. And then they, they know that they've caused pain. And, and the reality is, even if it's not specifically about issues of race, though I, I know I've caused pain in personal relationships with friends, that I recognize as somebody who's been a pastor for a number of years now, that there are moments in which I've caused pain, even in, in the midst of trying to bring the gospel. So there are moments where I, as a pastor, or even we as elders have apologized for uh, ways that we've cared for or, or loved folks or not done that well. And that happens on in, um, individual church level. It happens at, uh, as a part of our denomination and some of the things that, that feel painful. It happens, uh, it just happens all the time in all kinds of relationships. But what I'm saying is even in the church, even in the church that's supposed to be this place of beauty and rest and healing, there is pain that's caused, and it is, it's then painful to recognize that that's true of me. That, that we, each and every one of us, have wronged other people. But the beauty of the gospel is that we've been offered forgiveness, and that that dramatically changes the way that we approach others, that we're able to forgive them. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that, okay, I'm just going to hurt people. And it, no, that actually puts us in a position of being able to recognize that's true. So then to attempt to avoid doing it in the future. Not just a, oh, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm a leader, I, I couldn't hurt anybody. No, a, a, this is a real possibility, and so we need to be on guard all the time to, to think about really trying to care for people well and recognizing that we're not going to get it right all the time. Again, in, in every sphere of our life, I'm not just talking about the church, I'm talking about in all of our relationships, that we need to embrace the fact that we're going to wrong other people. But as we understand that, and we understand the truth of that for the gospel, and even the pain that it is to recognize we've caused that, that, that we're able to then 
sit in that truth and be humble about ourselves. So go back to last week, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Think of others as better than yourself, Philippians 2. That's, that's not easy to do. But more easy when we recognize that we're a part of the problem, right? That we're going to need forgiveness ourselves. So that we can then find ourselves forgiving one another. So there's some, maybe, we find ourselves here. Put off these things. Put away these things. Put on this. Go, go do it. Go put away all the, the malice in, in your lives. And then forgive others and be kind and tenderhearted. Now, hopefully we've already seen some of the way the gospel plays out in that, uh, recognizing our need of forgiveness. But the, the last point here is, is the power to do this. It is really clear where, where it comes from. So at the end of, of verse 32, it's not just a, something that Paul tacks on. It's integral to the ability to do this. He says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So do this as Christ forgave you. He's reminding us of the example that Christ set for us and that he forgave us. When we were in rebellion against him, we were turned away from him, when we were his enemies, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins from back in chapter 2 of this book, of this letter. He, he saved us. He forgave us. He provided for us and drew us into relationship with him, with his people. He redeemed us. This is this example that he set for us. But it's not just an example. It's power for us. Because it draws us into relationship with him. And being in relationship with him is now being in relationship with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that we would have the Spirit and the power of the Spirit in our lives. So I was thinking about an illustration for this. There's not really a better one than the one that Jesus gives in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And it's essentially there's a servant who owes... I mean, for all practical purposes, it's like a billion dollars to the king. He'll never be able to pay this back. And, uh, and he goes to the king, and the king is ready to put him in jail and his whole family until he can pay it back, which he would never be able to do. And he begs for forgiveness, and the king grants him forgiveness. He forgives his debt. All that he owed is forgiven. And he goes out, and he comes across uh, a fellow servant who owes him money. And it's like... Uh, if he owed a billion, it's like he, he uh, is owed $1,000. And he goes to that guy and he says, you owe me. And he begins to choke him. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And then he sends him to prison until he can pay it. And you read it and you hear the parable. Like, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus' point is that's exactly what we do. If you go back to Hebrews 12... And the bitterness builds up because we don't understand and embrace the grace of God. We don't understand that there's the king who has forgiven us more than we could have ever paid off. But we turn around to one another about things that are insignificant. And and one is that example that Jesus sets. We forget the example, but it's more than that. Because the reality is that servant now has the power to forgive the other servant because he doesn't owe, have this huge debt anymore. So he actually has in his, to his account all that he needs. He, does, he doesn't need to go after that other servant and choke him and send him to prison. He actually has the freedom to forgive him because of what's been offered to him. And in that scenario, Jesus has given us grace and forgiveness and the power of that grace and forgiveness in order that we might be empowered to forgive others, even in really difficult situations even where it seems impossible. But there's hope 
There's hope and power because of what Jesus has done for us. It's a work that works in us powerfully so that we could then begin to move toward this attitude of putting away malice and putting on tenderheartedness and kindness and forgiveness.